Thank you. Thank you, Brian. It's a delight to be with you. And what a great time of worship. You know, I love all the instruments, but I'm an old trombone player, so I'm convinced that there's going to be a brass section in heaven. And uh, that was a great, great uh, time of worship. And Psalm 145 is one of my favorite psalms, so I'm excited to get to share in this twice and uh, to share with you this morning. <clears throat> you know, when I was first learning to play the trombone, I was in middle school, and I remember seeing an 8-millimeter film. And it was about a concept called metamorphosis. And it was the classic egg to caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly sequence. And so it's even more riveting on uh, DVD. So let's watch that for just a few seconds because we're going to be focusing on the concept of transformation this morning. You know, the only problem with that video is it doesn't show them flying away. Uh, years ago, we were in Brazil, and we went to a habitat for butterflies. And it is fascinating to watch the, the beauty and the freedom as they float through the air. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul uses this very word, metamorphosis. It's only used four times in the New Testament, twice describing Jesus' uh, transfiguration in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, and then in Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here in the passage that we learn, we're going to consider this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And that transformation from egg to butterfly, even in the egg, there is a reality. The scientists call it imaginal uh, disk. And so the destiny of that butterfly is certain even from the very beginning. And you and I are in a transformation process. And if we trusted Jesus Christ, our destiny is certain. We are going to be like Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to chapter 3, verse 6, Paul tells us the what. You and I are moving toward a triumphant conclusion to our life. Jesus is always leading us into triumph, and we have the privilege of being partners with him in a ministry that matters forever. What a great blessing. What a significant privilege you and I have. And now in verses 7 to 18, he describes for us how that's going to happen. How that's going to happen for you personally as you grow in your relationship with Christ. Our message this morning is entitled, Stimulating Spiritual transformation. And there's two things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at a graphic contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And then we're going to look at, at, at a gradual and glorious transformation that God wants to fulfill in every follower of His Son, Jesus Christ. In verses 7 to 15, we see this graphic Contrast, And you and I need to grasp it if we're to appreciate what God is doing in our life. And it's that contrast between the Mosaic Law and the grace that we experience in Jesus Christ. He tells us in these verses that when it comes to the law, there are three things that we need to remember. We need to remember that it's external. That it was given to us on stones that were outside of us. 
We know the story from the book of Exodus. Moses receives those commandments. When he comes down, the people are already in open rebellion against God, and he breaks the first set that God gives him. And then when God replaces those, he has the glory on his own countenance of such an incredible revelation from God. But it was external. It only diagnosed the problem. It could not provide a remedy. Uh, there were many different things that the law required, many different types of sacrifices. But over and over again, it talks about intentional sin. And I don't know about you, but my problem is not unintentional sin. My problem is intentional sin. When I do what I know I shouldn't do. And for many of those things, such as murder, adultery, uh, various things that were common in the world of that period and today as well, there is no remedy in the law. You die if you do those things. Provide a diagnosis, but no real solution. And verse 9 tells us that it condemns us. It's not only external, but it condemns us. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we discover uh, this truth. Galatians 3 verse 14. He says this. Cursed, or verse 13 rather, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And he says that, uh, that if you do not do all the things written in the law, to perform them, you're cursed. You see, Christ provides a remedy for all of us because the law had to be obeyed in its entirety. I have a good friend who's a Jewish rabbi, and he reminds me that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And in fact, I persistently encouraged him to trust Christ. And he reminds me, I don't want you to become a Jew. It's too complicated. It's too hard. And I share with my good friend that it's not only too complicated and hard, it doesn't really provide the solution that we need. And so it's external. It condemns. And it's temporary. In the book of, uh, in verses 7 to 14, five times it tells us that the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, was never designed to be permanent. And the illustration of that is that the glory that was on Moses' face when he came down from the mountain was fading. It was already fading, so Moses' solution was to put a veil so they couldn't see how the glory was diminishing after he had been in the presence of God. The basic principle of these verses, verses 7 to 11, when it comes to the Old Testament law, is that it's outside of us. And our problem is on the inside. It is something that condemns but doesn't save. And it is very short-lived. You and I live in a world that's trying to cover the fact that this life is fading. I have a picture of two people. You probably are familiar with both of them. On the left is a supermodel, Christy Brinkman. She's in her 60s now. She doesn't look like she's in her 60s. And in fact, she has a 
brand of cosmetics that she'll sell you for a pretty penny that will allow you to look like her if you believe the commercial. Now, she does look very attractive for 61, but she's fading. She has wrinkles, we just can't see them. And that body is decaying. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. No matter how youthful she looks, the reality of her life is relentlessly moving toward death. The second picture is Vladimir Putin, not Vladimir Putin, it's uh, uh, Lenin, rather. It's where Putin's headed, but it's Lenin. He died in 1924. And they embalmed his body, put it in a special environment that it would not decay as quickly as it might otherwise. And if you're willing to stand in line long enough, you can go through and actually see this memorial to the man who enslaved the Russian people. In fact, someone said he looks better now than he did when he was alive. And that may be true. But he's dead, dead, dead. You see, you and I have been given an Old Testament law that was external and Temporary, and it can only provide for our condemnation. And if that was all we would have, we would just know that we were sinful. And we'd be in a desperate circumstance. But Christ, when he came on the cross, gave us the grace that we sang about this morning. And through Christ, we have a new reality. We have a new covenant. And this new covenant is described in these verses as something that's internal. It's actually happening on the inside of us where our problem is and where the only solution can be provided by God himself. It is a solution that provides righteousness. Jeremiah 31 says that God will remember our sin no more, but Philippians 3 reminds us that we not only receive forgiveness of our sin, but we receive the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you and me, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then finally, in verse 11, we discover that this glory, unlike the glory that was immediately fading on the face of Moses, this glory is permanent, and not only permanent, but it's increasing. It is being transformed, as we will see, from glory to glory. What God is doing in our lives is not diminishing, but escalating as we stay focused on Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter uh, 7 to 10 reminds us that we have a new covenant. And it is a glorious new covenant. And it is far better than the old covenant. The Old Testament covenant required that the high priest offer a sacrifice for himself. And then once a year to go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the people. But in this covenant, this covenant of grace, Jesus Christ, who did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was without sin, he offered his very life. And as we sang this after, this morning, his blood red, ran red and our sin was washed white. What an incredible contrast. What a blessing to be people who have heard that news 
and have had the opportunity to not only respond to it, but to share it in a world that is desperately longing for the very relationship that only Christ can provide. He tells us in verse 15 that this veil remains. He says their minds were hardened. They read the old covenant, but their veil was unlifted. And it lies over their heart. You and I live in a world where there are people who've heard the gospel, and yet they don't see it. Maybe it's because of ignorance. They don't really understand it. Some people maybe have never heard it clearly presented to them. Maybe it's because of apathy. They're just not that concerned. As someone asked a person, what's worse, ignorance or apathy? And the guy said, I don't know and I don't care. And we live in a world where there are people like that. They don't know and they don't care. But there's also a strong strand of arrogance. We live in a world that is convinced that man is the center of things. Man is the solution to all things. And man is basically good. And even if there is a God, man is so good, God will want to be with him for eternity no matter what man has done. And that kind of arrogance that puts man at the center of things is one of the signal indicators of our current reality. The veil remains. That's a reality. You and I live in a world that is dark. A world that the light must penetrate if there's to be hope for people. And so he tells us in verses 16 and following that you and I are part of God's plan to pierce that darkness with light. Listen to what he says. Let me read verses 16 to 18 for you. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, in a world that struggles to grasp the contrast, a contrast between man's best efforts to please God and the provision of salvation through Christ, into that world, you and I are called to focus on the gradual and glorious transformation that comes for those who are following Jesus Christ. He says in verse 16, the veil is taken away. I had the privilege last month of going and spending a week in Cuba. And we had two conferences with pastors and church planters who are working all over Cuba. Uh, those 300 church planters are about half of those that are involved in this ministry that I partner with. And they have planted 11,000 churches in the last 17 years. Many of them are small house churches. 10, 20, 30 people. But some of them are large churches, hundreds of people. And I've had the chance to preach in some of those larger churches. And to work with those pastors and to encourage them and to, to answer their questions about theology was an incredibly uh, exciting and stimulating and, and uh, fulfilling experience. And every night we would have an evangelistic meeting in one of the churches. 
And we went out in the rural areas where there were little concrete areas next to the pastor's house. And they would cram 30, 40, 50, 60 people into a place that you and I would feel would be crowded after about 15. And we saw scores of people indicated after a clear presentation of the gospel that they had trusted Christ. Very exciting. The last night, we went to a place... In Havana terms, a more middle-class neighborhood, and they were expecting a large crowd, but when we got there, there were very few people there. And the reason, I discovered, was that one of the men who was a part of the leadership of that church had been at our conference the day before. And on his way home, he had a massive heart attack and died. And that little congregation had spent the last 24 hours burying him and caring for his family. And by the time they went through all that, most of the people that were going to be there were responding to that trauma. And so I got up to preach from Psalm, from Isaiah 55, which I've been preaching all week. It was the passage my father had heard when he trusted Christ in 1934. And I shared the gospel with him. I shared this basic message. That God had created them to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. To have the privilege of being a part of what he's doing in the world. In something that's going to matter for eternity. But like me and everybody else, they had a problem. They had rebelled against God. They weren't the only ones, but that had been going on since the beginning of human history. And that rebellion, that resistance to God had not only damaged them, it had damaged their relationships. And then no matter how they tried to fix it on their own terms, through religious activity, through moral improvement, or any other means, they would fall short because what they needed was to be perfect like God is perfect. And that simply is not possible on our terms. And then when Christ died on the cross, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves because he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the bridge between God and man. And when he died, he paid our debt, though he had no debt. He took our place as our substitute. And when we trust what he did on the cross, God has made an incredible promise that by putting our faith in him, he will forgive our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness and give us life everlasting. And I shared that message. And after I shared it, we made it clear that this was for people who never trusted Christ before. And whereas in other venues, there were 20, 30 people that would indicate they trusted Christ, three people that night raised their hands. One of them was an older lady. And so after the service, she came up to me, brought the pastor's wife, and the translator, and she wanted to talk to me, and she told me that she was going to be 83 the next day. And she told me that this vivacious young pastor's wife had been visiting with her for weeks, and had been telling her the same thing that I talked about that night, but she had been resisting that message. The veil was over her eyes. She was thinking that surely I don't need something this extreme. I'm not that bad a person. And then she explained to me that when she was listening to what I said, it was like she saw it for the first time. She didn't say the veil was lifted, but that's what happened. And she said, 
I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. And tomorrow I turn 83. I thought, wow. That's what Paul's talking about. When the veil is lifted, God begins to do something. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we become a new creation. We begin a process that has a destiny, and that destiny is to be like Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that when the veils are lifted, two things happen. First of all, he says in verse 17, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, when a person is, is uh, brought to life by the Spirit, when they are indwelt by the Spirit, as the Spirit begins to work within them, he says there is liberty, there is freedom. Now, in religious circles, there are those who think that they can have a relationship with God through legalism, through their good works. There are those who think that they can enjoy life to the max by license, that is, doing whatever they want to do. And both of those are essentially selfish. What God offers us is neither legalism nor license, but liberty, real freedom, not freedom to sin, as it says in Galatians 5, but freedom to serve God and actually be involved in what God created us to do. We were made to be his partners in sharing the light of Christ in a dark and painful world. And you will not find real satisfaction long term in any other priority in life. Every other pursuit in life may give you short term fulfillment. And many of them are things that you might want to do as you build relationships with people. But ultimately, our objective is to build the kind of relationships with people that allow us to be the light of Christ and share the love of Christ so that they will have the privilege of doing what God created them to do, which is to be his partner in sharing the light of Christ. He says we have liberty. We have liberty from sin's power. In the present, we already have liberty from sin's penalty in the past because we're no longer condemned. And we will one day have liberty from sin's presence because there will be no sin in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. You and I are called to experience that liberty from sin and its power to celebrate the goodness of God and to be a blessing to others. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we're saved by grace through faith in the previous verse, but we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has plans for your life. If you know Christ, God has plans for your life. And if you're not involved in what God has planned for you, it's not surprised that you're bored. It's not surprised that you're saying, man, why, why isn't life more exciting? Why isn't life more fulfilling? And the more you look for something to fill what God intended to satisfy through your partnership with Him, the more likely you're going to stumble into something that will be destructive to you and to those you love. Liberty. The freedom to serve God and to be filled with joy in the process. You know people like that, don't you? You know people like that. Maybe some of you are like that. And people are always saying, what do they know that I don't know? Why are they so happy? How do they continue to love God even when things are hard? It's because they know the liberty that comes when we're engaged in God's purpose. And the second thing he tells us is not only do we experience liberty, but we experience glory. 
He says in verse 18, We all with unveiled face beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You see, Christ is the Son. We sing about that. We sing about God being the Son. And you and I are like a mirror. Now I want you to look at this picture. On the left you have the Son. It's just a, an inferno of energy uh, production. It's not going to last forever. This is a great time machine that we're in. There's going to be a new creation and a new, a new heaven, a new earth. But for the foreseeable future, that's the energy source for our planet. The moon, on the other hand, has no energy. It is just a rock. But if it's positioned in the heavens so that we can see it, it is glorious. But it's a glory that is derived from its position relative to the sun. Now, you are not a rock. You're a living creature made in the image of God. You're much more valuable than the moon. And guess what? Your life can be more glorious than the moon. Because the moon has no choice. It's just going, it's just going around and around, right? But every morning, you have a choice to wake up and position yourself with a focus on Christ, to release control of your life to Him, and to look for opportunities to respond to what He has prepared for you to do, and in the power of the Spirit to obey God so that you can be useful to Him. And when you realize you're anxious or angry or arrogant and you're sinful, you don't have to stay there till Sunday. You can quickly confess your sin and agree with God that you need to refocus your attention on Christ so that you can reflect His glory. And He'll put you in situations where it's really dark, but a little bit of light will change everything in that dark situation. Now, you know this is true. Where we focus makes a big difference, right? How many of you play golf? Anybody else play golf or play at it? Everybody's giving up. I need to go ahead and give up. But if you ever play golf, you know that if you're teeing off next to some water... Let's say there's a lake right over there, and somebody says a few seconds before you tee off, don't hit it in the water. What's going to happen? You start thinking about the water. Where does the ball go? In the water. Where you focus matters. And what Paul is saying, if you keep your focus on Christ, if you release control of your life to Him, then the glory that is Christ, far more than the glory of our Son, far more brilliant than anything else in the universe, when His glory is something that we're looking at all the time, our life becomes a mirror. And as we stay focused on Him wherever He puts us, that glory from Him increases and increases. It is always reflected glory. We are never the source of the glory, but we are the benefactor of that glory. We are changed by His glory, and we're used for His glory. What an incredible blessing. And that's exactly what you were made for. You were made to be God's instrument in Waco, Texas, and wherever He takes you, to reflect the glory of God. Now, there's two kind of folks here today. There's some people here who never trusted Christ. And if you never trusted Christ, that little, like that little 83-year-old lady in Cuba, until the veil is lifted, you're going to be scrambling through life trying to find something that will satisfy you. And I need to tell you the truth. 
Only Jesus Christ will satisfy your soul. And the only way you can know Christ is to agree with him about your sin and accept the free gift that he offers and to begin a life in which he has promised to begin to change you as you keep your focus on him. There are people in this church, pastors, elders, who would love to talk with you and help you take that step so that you can know the joy of having the veil lifted. But in this audience, there are probably many of you who know Christ, but if you're honest, you're having a hard time keeping your focus. You find yourself focused on everything else, and there's not much glory, because when you're not focused on Christ, the mirror doesn't work without the light. And so I want to give you five things that will help you stay focused on Christ. Very quickly. Five things that will help you be transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. First of all, fill your mind with God's Word. Romans 12, where it uses the same word transformation, being transformed. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you focus on what God says and you allow God to change your attitudes and then your actions, your humility resulting in service and blessing others, then you will begin to experience this glory. When you depend upon God's power and not your willpower, this is not a self-improvement plan. This is a plan in which God says, you can't do it, but I can do it. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power at work with you, within you to stay focused on Christ and to be able to do whatever God wants you to do in any dark place he may take you. Live each day intentionally. I'd encourage you to wake up in the morning and release control of your life to God and then say, God, I don't know what you have planned for me, but I want to respond to it. I don't want to see it when it's in the rearview mirror. I want to see it when it's coming toward me so I can get ready to be your instrument in that situation. Live life intentionally. A number of you have gone through the discipleship process that we've developed, and it's exciting to talk to some of the folks after the first service. But in session six, we talk about living in dependence mode, and that's an absolutely critical part if you're going to stay focused on Christ so that you don't wait until you are in a desperate place spiritually, but as soon as you realize you're anxious, arrogant, or angry, you immediately experience restoration through the confession and agreement with God. You need to build friendships, number four. Build friendships with people who are spiritually encouraging. You and I need to help each other stay focused on Christ. And then finally, and fifthly, you need to focus on progress, not perfection. I'm 64, and certainly, if Paul can say that he's not arrived yet, but he's still pressing toward the mark, that's true for me and it's true for you. The question isn't whether you're always the mirror you need to be. The question is, are you more and more the mirror that reveals the glory of Christ? And if that happens for you, you'll start having more fun than you could ever imagine. And God will begin to do something. Because in that midst, basically, when we're transparent and honest before God, when we're dependent upon Him and His Spirit's power as we focus on Christ, it will fuel a glorious transformation. It will be a blessing to you. It will be a blessing to others. And it will honor Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you this week. This is a week that matters. I'm 64. 
If I live to be 74, I've got about 3,600 more days. See, when you're 64, you realize life is short. Some of you that are 14 said, man, that old guy, I hope he makes it to the weekend. But even if you got 50 more years, life is very short. Here's the great news. Every single day matters forever. And I hope that God will give you the blessing of having that great joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these friends. Fulfill your purpose through them. Fulfill your purpose in them. And Father, as you're doing that, it will always be because they are trusting you, depending on your spirit, and being positioned to reflect your glory. They will never be the source of that glory. But Father, we thank you that because we're joint heirs with you, you have promised to share your joy with us. Thank you for that blessing in Christ's name.